0: This is Jim Minns and you're listening to Minimal. My guest this week is the federal member for McMahon, Chris Bowen. Hi, Chris Bowen. Welcome to Minimal. G'day, the good Minns. How are you? (laughs) That's what they call me. That's what I'm known as. (laughs) It is.
1: It's your nickname uh, amongst a certain circle.
0: (laughs) Mate, really appreciate your time. I know it's precious, so I thank you for being here today um wanted to talk to you in particular uh you know uh all, full disclosure uh we know each other for a while have known each other for a while uh we go way back guilty, guilty. yeah guilty yeah. you run a podcast rekindling hope with sam crosby i'm one of the producers on the show yes. and you know we we've, we've, we've got a lot of vested interests, but i've never had a had a sit down with you before and i just wanted to see if we could nut out some things about who you are what drives you and um Oh, God. How long have we got? <laughs> <laughs> well, mate, you have to fit it all in five minutes, if that's okay. Okay, all oh, right. He's, um, and do you charge by the hour for the psychological question? <laughs> I, 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 tra- I charge by the hits, all right? And okay. then uh, I'll, oh, I'll, I'll, right. I'll okay. dis- dispel them to you. Okay. Um, mate, so what I know from your history is when you put your hand up to run for leader of the of the Federal Labor Party in the wake of 2019, is that you are born in Smithfield and you still live in Smithfield. This is true. This is yeah. true.
1: I've I've moved from one end of Smithfield to the other um like literally I grew up at the Fairfield end of Smithfield, like almost the last street in Smithfield before it turns into fairfield, and now I live in the last street in Smithfield before it turns into Wetherill Park. so there's about maybe um four kilometers in between the two of those houses, so it's true um your homeboy stay close yeah, to the yeah. stay close to the nest love love it love the place um uh my kids our kids go to the same school's primary and high school that I went to just by. You know, by virtue of where we live and um, it's a really it's a really nice community and we're very happy here so um, why would you leave?
0: Absolutely and you know it, it, it's obviously sort of fueled you as a person what drives you you know I'm not going to say as a political individual just as an individual I mean it's it, strange it's,
1: it's, it's an important part of who I am I mean of course we're all complex beings and you know there's many factors which go into you know determining who we are but I think where you grew up and where you live um, is is a very important part of that, and is for me. And from my point of view, in my in my line of work, um, you know, I enjoy representing the people I grew up with, and many of whom still live here. You know, one of my best mates from school is down the street. I'll go to the shops and I'll run into you know parents of people I went to school with who may have moved away, or themselves, or you know people I've known for a long, long time. Um, and, I th- you know, it means I, I'd like to think I know how the area ticks, you know, mm. and, and, and people come up with ideas and I say, oh, yes, but, you know, we tried that in, you know, 1999 mm. and mm. Um, here's why it didn't work, et cetera. Yeah, so all that sort of stuff, you know. Um, yeah.
0: Well, it's, 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 a- it's a place that has, you know, it's got a, a very unique history in politics in Australia. Um, you know, like it, it, some of its history is dark. in in that area in particular, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I I, I wanted to go into an area, I didn't know if you wanted to breach on it or not, but, you know, you were involved in the Labor Party during the time of um, John Newman when he was the local politician.
1: Yep, I thought that's what you were referring to when you were referring to the dark period. That's where
0: I wanted to go. You know, I was a child when he was murdered and I don't really know much about the story. Uh, just wanted to know if it's not too much of a dark area to talk about. Oh, what no, was he like no. as a man?
1: Uh, well, uh, yeah, it's <clears throat> I knew him pretty well. Um, so I was active in the Labour Party by the time he uh, he uh, was killed. Um, uh, but I actually knew him much longer than that because he was a um, an organizer for an, uh, a union called the um, Federated Clerks Union. Uh, now called the United Services Union, and my dad was a shop steward or a, or a delegate for that union, and so they knew each other and became friends, and um, in fact, you may or may not know that John Newman, um, he actually lost his first wife and son in a car accident, uh, and when that happened, many, many, many years ago, it was actually my dad that John Newman rang to say, Mary and John Jr. have um been in a car accident oh, and dad really? said, Oh, are they okay? And he said, No, they're both dead and oh, you know, that's um you know, that's um and then, uh, you know, we my family sort of helped him through that period. I was I was a you know, a very small boy, but my mum and dad helped him through that period quite substantially. And then as it happened, you know, years later I turned up in the Labour Party and he by then was a state MP. He, he was State M P for Cabramatta, which is in our community it's not where I lived or live, so it's, you know, a little bit if you like, um, um I don't know, maybe it's like the difference between Cogra and Hurstville so you know sort of next to each other and and know each other but not exactly the same place but sure. so we were never sort of in the same circle in that regard but I remember very much the night he he was killed I'd actually been to a, a branch meeting and then this was pre-mobile phones pre-internet pre-internet yeah. um news flash came on channel nine news you know 10 o'clock at night or something that yeah. a state member had been murdered and I said, well, that would only be John Newman, like it was before the name, because it was just such a controversial time and period. Right. Um, and I uh, ended up connecting with my mate and now still mate and colleague, Jason Clare, late that night, like midnight and comparing notes. And I've got to tell you, I don't mind saying, um, uh, I th- I thought at the time it was Fung Ngo. Um. Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, it was years later that he was charged and convicted, uh, and Fung No and I had a very, very very poor relationship. We, you know, really disliked each other very strongly uh-huh. um, and and clashed a lot on Fairfield Council. So it's sort of... Um, we were you want, those,
0: how old were you? Were you on council?
1: Um, so I'm just trying to... Th- I wasn't quite so... John Newman, uh, John was killed in 1994, and I went on to council in 1995. So I was, oh, wow, you know, okay. very active, but and around. Yeah. But, but you were and, young.
0: You were in yeah, early 20s. Yeah, I, I went on to
1: Fairfield Council when I was um, 20, 23, 22, yeah. 23, yeah. Okay. Um, and so I then clashed with Full No a lot because he was, you know, we don't need to you know, bore your listeners with no, all the sure, details, sure. but... um. We clashed a lot. Had very fundamental different views about what public life was for, and and some some dis, some disagreements about matters of probity. And all this time, I I was working under the belief that he had murdered the state MP. Wow! Yeah. But he, it was years before he was charged, before they got the evidence. So, whenever I'm in a sort of in a fight, I think, well, um, in a political fight, you know, it's pretty hard to. Pretty hard to um, find one where, uh, you know, it's as stressful as arguing with somebody who you believe is a murderer.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I doubt you faced much uh, much in terms of uh, strenuous political argument other than, you know, the Fairfield Council days of when you were. when yeah, you were was on, a young uh, lad. And, absolutely, yeah. He yeah, in some time. strong
1: arguments. So, yeah. So John Newman was a, yeah, he was a very, they were both, Controversial uh, in their way, Newman and Fulno, but you know John was fundamentally a decent person.
0: Was he? Yeah. 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 Um, Only known by you know. I just remember the. I remember the time I was ten years old. Um, I remember. I just remember my dad being quite shocked at the time, mm. and um, subsequently growing up in a labour family, um, Chris progressing through the party, but it's just something that I that I've through you I remembered and I was just like oh really? I'm, I, I always wanted to ask you and I'm sorry it's through such a public forum but uh, <laughs> no, I appreciate no, I mean, sharing you sharing know, it's not really it's not really
1: something I um, spend much time on now sure. Um but uh, yeah it was very big very big uh, part of my you know I, 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 we were fighting over over things Yeah, you know, he he did he was trying all sorts of frankly corrupt deals on Fairfield Council and I was the one sort of opposing him and it was pretty high stakes stuff yeah and he yeah. was a very formidable operator, uh, Fung No. He was very charming and he took a lot of people in. He was, I mean, literally, literally the smiling assassin. Yeah. Right, <laughs> like, right, know, that's, yeah, That's, yeah. that's yeah. a term where gets coming. This, this guy was literally the smiling assassin. That's but what he they, had they a lot him, of,
0: yeah.
1: You know, a lot of people were taken in by him and um, he had a lot of support uh, in the community and so taking him on was a very big thing. But, yeah, as I said, it sort of toughened me up a fair bit and, Means I don't mind if I believe in something, and I believe in it strongly. I don't mind a stoush, you know, and um, I know that stouches come with risks, uh, not least of which um, uh, was 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 that. And I remember one big argument we had about a, a vote on council where he'd done he was trying to get this real estate deal through, and I said, "Well, I'm not going to support you on that." And he said. Um, well, you know, I'll charge you under the Labor Party's rules and have you expelled from the party. And I said, well, I'll charge you under ICAC's rules. And you know. <laughs> and uh, at one point he said, if you stop this, I'll pursue you to your grave. And I oh thought, this guy, I'm 99% sure this guy has murdered somebody. He just told me he's going to pursue me to my grave. That is a, wow. a double-edged meaning. You know? Totally, but yeah.
0: Anyway, yeah. Um, you bullies, whether they be murderers or not, you, um, you don't give in to them. Another time, though, right, Chris? I mean, like it's... Uh uh, you just don't hear that sort of intrigue at such well, a thank high goodness. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. Yeah, we Yeah, yeah. Um, I know. I mean, but, but you well, know, here we are, is- almost twenty years on, and, and that's that's that 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 is as as high as it comes in terms of horrendous, horrific criminal uh, conduct in public office in yes. Australia.
1: Yes, totally. I mean, there is still plenty of, I and mean, we have seen plenty of it play out. Still, plenty of poor conduct in politics. Well, but, of course. Um, yeah, most people draw the line at. At murder,
0: well, yeah, Mm. Uh, as they should. Um, Mm. So, do you reckon John was uh, a mentor to you? Oh, look, I wouldn't overstate it. Um,
1: As I said, he was a good friend of the family. Um, um, But I wouldn't, I couldn't sort of say that he was a mentor. He was very nice to me and supportive of me and friendly to me, and I, you know, I returned that. Um, and it's part of the reason, probably why full no hated me so much um, sure. but but I wasn't as I said he was Cameron I was sort of Smithfield Fairfield, so it wasn't really yeah okay we you know I wouldn't ring him up and you know say I'm thinking of doing this or that, what do you think? there would be other people I would have done that with, but we were on good terms, and I was yeah. you know as shocked as everyone else and as of course as as sad and particularly with the family background by his by his death
0: did that uh cast a a, a doubt on you? in your formidable years of thinking of pursuing public office?
1: No, no, I, I couldn't really, Jim, say that it did. I guess looking back, at maybe shut off, <laughs> it maybe should have,
0: but
1: it didn't. Um, like it was big and huge and shocking, of course, and still is. But, no, I can't say that it, it ever gave me pause to say, well, is this really what I want to do? Well, that's always what I wanted to do with that's my career. Yeah, yeah, always. Yeah. And, you know, um, and, you know, you have good days and bad days, and some days you play, you know, kick the wall and think, is all this worth it? Why am I doing this to myself? But, you yeah. know, they don't, those times don't last long, and um, ultimately, uh, it's the only game in town, I think, for politics. You know, if you care about society, you know, I always think, well, there's lots of good things you can do in society, but if you're, you know, a charity worker or a philanthropist or something, well... That's very important work and noble work, and, and we really need it. But you're dealing with the symptoms, you're dealing with the results. But if you're in politics and you've got your hands on the lever, as Paul would say, um, you're dealing with the causes. And so that's what drives, drove me into politics, still drives me. And, you know, the day will come when I think, oh, well, I've probably done my bit, and, you know, it might be time for a quieter life, and I'm not quite enjoying it as much anymore. But that day's a while off yet. And um, uh, in the meantime, it gets me out of bed every day.
0: Well, that's interesting. I mean, like, from that, I wanted to ask you, uh, you know, 2010, we're jumping a little bit ahead here, but, you know, you're an economics graduate. You become a member of parliament in Canberra. uh, Within three years of your time, Uh, you're in government. Within three years of being elected, you are in government. You've got access to the levers. The global – you know, a Labor government is elected 2007. The global financial crisis happens 2008. Uh, can you tell me around about the time, that time uh, during the uh, 2008, was was the Labor government, did they feel as if, you know, you were ready for that moment? Or did, I mean, I suppose no one's ever ready for that moment. No, no, no. What no was the initial, what happened? What's the, what, what's day one when you see the markets crash, the subprime goes through, you know, goes, hits the bottom. Is everybody freaking out? What happened in, in the Australian government during that day?
1: Yeah, I mean, well, Firstly, I should, you know, declare I was pretty junior at the time, so okay. I don't want to overstate, you know, my role. anybody's listening, you know, I was not calling himself. No, the no yeah, of I'd course. like to say I'd like to say I was, but you know, um, I, wasn't. Well, we'll I was. Well, we'll get to I, that. We'll get to that. I, I was there. I was in the room uh, often. I was assistant treasurer at that time. So yeah, know, Kevin was prime minister, whom, with whom I was and remained very close. Wayne was treasurer, um, and I was assistant treasurer. So. Um, And I was on the um, expenditure review committee of the cabinet, um, but I wasn't in the SPRC, I think it was called, which was, you know, became known as the Gang of Four, which was Kevin, Julia, Wayne and Lindsay Tanner who were calling the shots as they should have at that time. You know, it was was just an urgent crisis time. You needed a very small group. So I wasn't part of that, but I I
0: did occasionally go to their meetings. Um, But you're you're an economics graduate, right? And so all of your training, all of your natural instinct that's built up to this moment of crisis, and you are in government, you've got the levers. Yeah, and, you know, um, I was
1: talking to both Kevin and Wayne quite a lot at that time, and they were talking to each other at that period. It all fell apart later. But they they were a very effective governing partnership. Um, You know, that Prime Minister-Treasurer partnership at the time of a global financial crisis is really all that counts, and they were very effective and good at it, but they did they did take advice, including from me and others, um, about what was necessary. In the moment, you know, you ask what it was like when it was... I think it was actually pro- beforehand, to give Wayne his credit, it was before Lehman Brothers and the crisis, but I remember an expenditure review committee um, meeting where we were setting the budget parameters, you know, and where we were saying, you know, what sort of surplus were we aiming for, et cetera. And Wayne yeah, basically called the shots. We were having a meeting, but, you know, he, he was the chair of the ERC and... We all knew that he would call the shot, but it was a process we were going through. And, you know, he laid out what he thought we should go for in a surplus. And he said, with one footnote, unless the global economy collapses, which at this point I don't rule out, and everybody sort of, you know, quietly laughed, but he was deadly serious. And that's the sort of – you know, he was – he was – you know, had access to all the international briefings and stuff, and that's when I thought, hmm, okay, this actually is – this could go very badly. But, um, you know, we had to throw everything at it. Um, and, again, I remember, I, I guess – it was all a bit of a blur in some ways, but I remember um, a senior banker ringing me one Saturday and saying, look, I'm trying to get to the Treasurer. You're the Assistant Treasurer. I haven't got through the Treasurer yet, but I thought I'd just get through to you. You know, our ATMs are being emptied. Um, we, I don't think we're going to last till Monday. Um, et and that's the day we put the bank guarantee on and um, uh, et cetera, which, you know, Wayne and Kevin did. But um, so to a small degree, I was sort of passing that feedback on that this is, you know, this is very real uh, and they were getting it direct of course from the bankers and the and the financial industry themselves so it was a very full on period
0: yeah um, not too long after that I was reading up today in anticipation of our discussion 2 years on and you're the financial uh, you're the um uh, financial services minister mm. does that portfolio still exist um it's it's sort of got wrapped now into assistant treasurer by
1: and large yeah okay. so um, no, I don't think it does formally exist. Um, uh, the, the, the sort of portfolios sure. sort of change around. But you know, sort of the junior, um, uh, I, yeah, I left assistant treasurer and went to financial services and superannuation um, uh, in, uh, yeah, I think it was
0: 2009, yeah. Something like that. So it was interesting, you know, one of the uh, key uh, statutory requirements that you put on financial services uh, financial planners hmm. uh, was that you introduced statutory fiduciary obligations yep. for and and quite a quite a remarkable reform, really, if you think about it. Yeah. So, Do you have any uh, thoughts looking back on that?
1: Yeah. So I mean, uh, actually, if I say myself, it was a very reform-heavy period um, as financial services and super but ministers as it re- should be. Yeah, it really needed. So basically, I had sort of two aims. One, I really wanted to increase the superannuation guarantee from nine to twelve. Which wow. is still a topical debate today. 100% it is, yeah. Um, but, you know, we started that. So it was um, it was my recommendation that we increase from 9 to 12, which um, – um, and, and Kevin Rudd, of course, uh, fully um, not only supported that but, you know, agreed with it before I'd even said it. You know, he was fully on board. Yeah. Um, so that was important. But I also had the view that if you are going to increase it from 9 to 12 and put so much more money into super, you've also got to clean up the system. So we did things like My Super, which was, you know, basically um, a super account for people who don't know what they're doing or, you know, aren't interested. So they had some basic protections around them so that, you know, it wouldn't be a high cost. It wouldn't get eaten away by fees. It's had some success, you know, looking back. It could have been done better, but, you know, it's had some success. It's better than what we had before. And yeah. the other thing was that um, financial advice reform, um, which was huge at the time and was a big fight, frankly, um, with much of the financial planning sector, because we um, we did a whole bunch of things, and it arose out of, you know, it wasn't just me, we had a, a, a Bernie Ripoll who was the chairman of the Parliamentary Committee, he brought down a report, which was the basis, it was a good report, so I just took it as the basis of our policy. Um, and, um, you know, really pushed it through, but it was a big fight. And, you know, I used to say to financial planners and financial advisors, how can you possibly argue to me that you shouldn't have to act in the best interest of your client, you know? Yeah. Um, so they weren't fiduciaries no, prior to this? No, basically. there was no, no obligation to act in the best interest of the client. Um, we also did a whole bunch of other stuff. We improved the um, you know, education requirements, the uh, continual um, qualification requirements, which was onerous on them, to be fair, and particularly there's some of the older guys who, you know, had been financial planners for a long time but didn't sure. actually have any qualifications. Um, and many of them left the sector. I'm not saying they're bad planners. No. Um, but, you know, they just you, – you you know, I had the view that, you know, you, you wouldn't go – you wouldn't take your dog to a vet who, one, wasn't obliged to act in the best interest of the dog and, two, called themselves a vet but didn't have any qualifications, you know. Sure. so. We're dealing with millions of dollars, mm-hmm. and this was also a very controversial time, Jim. That you know, you might you might remember Storm Financial, um, yeah, and a few others, big collapses. Um, a lot of people hurt very badly. This was all happening at the time, so it really needed a big clean up. Yeah, and yeah, and we did it, and I'm proud of it. And um, you know, was it all 100 percent perfect? And no, but it was a huge step forward. Um, and the libs have tried on multiple occasions to wind it back. Um, and still try today, which really annoys me. It um, yeah. had a big go when they came to office in 2013. To basically, rip, scrap everything I did, and um, you know I was very pleased that we were able to resist most of that and beat them on most of that, and and the reforms have survived. Because um, this is these are just good people, right? Who work hard might end up because of superannuation and wonderful labour creation might end up with. You know, a bit of money in their account, maybe a few hundred thousand or, you know, maybe a million bucks, um, but they're not, you know, financially, um, you know, they're not wizards, so they, they take advice from people, and not too many of them were being burnt and, and frankly screwed. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm very glad that we cleaned that up.
0: It's interesting. I mean, uh, uh, do you think a policy like that would have existed if it weren't for the financial crisis? Could you push through a, re- a heavy reform like that two years after the fact?
1: Um. Maybe, but it certainly did help a lot. Um, yeah. You know, being able to point to Storm and um, a couple of the other collapses and say, you know, these are real people's, and they were, you know, very, very um, uh, public victims, and they, and, and no, you didn't sort of wake up and say, oh, I'm going to invest in Storm. You advised to do it by financial planner sure, or a financial advi- yeah. advisor, right? So, and these people had the trust of people, and there were some that was just poor advice, and there were some financial planners who were just doing the wrong thing and taking commissions. Yes. And that's the other big reform we did. We sort of, you know, basically got rid of all those upfront commissions. Um and there were trailing commissions and all sorts of things that we had to clean up because people, you know, was put, oh, well, as long as we tell our clients that we're getting a, a cut, then that's okay, but that's that's, why, I just yeah. didn't say it that way. <laughs> totally, not, yeah. Disclosure doesn't fix everything. Disclosure is important, but it doesn't fix everything.
0: No, and I think that was Tony Abbott's argument. He said yeah. as long as there's disclosure, then it shouldn't be an it issue. It just doesn't
1: cut the mustard. You know, you, get, you can have too much disclosure. You get like a 15-page... A Disclose your document, for, you, and most people aren't going to read it. You know, well, that's and, right.
0: And like you said, it was it, w- it was a reform for people who trust. There was a trust relationship yeah. that someone's looking after your finances in yeah. the best interest of you. And th- but there's no fiduciary obligation, so that they could take kickbacks and do whatever the hell they want.
1: Yeah, that's right. And that's and yeah, we, we cleaned it up. It was a big, as I said, big battle. It was a big, big arguments. So at one point, I was spending, and I tried to bring the sector with me, and there were good people in the sector as yeah. well. You know, sort of. There's two. There were, and I believe still are, two peak financial advisors, sort of professional groups, and they don't like each other. But I would, you know, spend a lot of time with them. At one point, I used to joke I spend more time with financial planners than I do with my wife. And I don't, you uh, know, certainly <laughs> don't make money. for them the plan it was all, all, all about, all <laughs> yeah. about, the um,
0: about uh, the reforms. Well, I mean, so you know, the victories like that, and and you know, we're staring down the barrel of another a uh, situation where there'll probably have to be some reform after mm. the COVID crisis. Mm. Um, I mean, there's just, uh, and this is going to sound really crass, but there's nothing better than, fr- than government, right? Like yeah. it's, the, it's the engine room, yeah. right? So how frustrating is it for you to be on, on the sidelines when the mm. engine's running without you,
1: oh, but you're the, the most
0: qualified person in the room?
1: Enormously frustrating for all of us because, you know, I know we'll probably, dare I say, get to the twenty nineteen election, but we would have been a good government, you know. Um, I believe that too. Um, you know, I think I think Bill would have been a good prime minister. I think as treasurer, dealing with the COVID crisis, um, you know, I would have um, I would have done my best, and I think uh, I think we would have been a good government. We would have had people like Brendan O'Connor there, who is a very experienced, you know, would have been the IR and, and workplace relations minister to help get us through this with all the stuff. We would, you know, no cabinet, incoming cabinet would have been more experienced than us, um, and so I think we would have been, we would have been a good pair of hands through this like this we were a crisis over the last few years. So that's frustrating. But just being in opposition generally is frustrating, um, and it's frustrating when you, I'm sure it's frustrating when you're facing a good, a good government, you know, but it's terribly frustrating when you're facing a bad government and you just yeah, totally, of, oh, yeah, man, it's mistakes, you know, occurring. Yeah, but you know that's that's the world we're in, you know if If I was in private industry and we had like forty nine percent market share you'd go well oh, this is a very successful business you know we've got forty nine percent of the market and you know this is all wonderful and we're all very busy but in politics you get forty nine percent of the market share you're completely irrelevant
0: because mm-hmm.
1: you're in opposition mm-hmm. um, there's no 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 world like that you know um, where the difference between fifty one and forty nine or fifty point zero zero one and forty nine point nine 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 is
0: so big yeah and it's huge yeah Absolutely, absolutely. And, um, well, okay, well, should we talk about, I mean, as as you know, I've interviewed um, Joe Hildebrand who had some, uh, uh, who wasn't shy of a few things to say about yep. 2019. Yeah, I had to listen to been, that. It would have been, you had listened listen to it, it would have been a, a life-changing um, uh, a, a position would have put you in. You would have been, you know, the treasurer once more. Mm. And I do want to talk about your time as treasurer in 2013, but you would have been treasurer once more. You went into it you went into the into the election with some bold strategies but you were the treasurer for about uh, you were the shadow treasurer for, for about 5 years so you'd built up mm. a bunch of strategies uh sorry a bunch of policy uh platforms um, uh, do, well, i mean what do you what do you I don't want to dwell on it mm. and I don't want this isn't a gotcha show but mm. how h- how do you how do you feel now you know with almost 3 years after the fact
1: oh uh, look yeah it's well, one. I and mean, you put pretty, everything.
0: You put everything in on the line. You totally put your heart right. and soul
1: into it. Totally, and worked. Not just me. All of us worked our guts sure. out for six years. Yep. You know. Yep. Going to small country towns in Western Australia. You of know, <laughs> yep. for, You know, absolutely exhausted. So it was very frustrating. Um, I guess where do you start, really? Um, I, I, I guess a few things, Jim. Firstly, obviously we, you know, we got plenty wrong. Otherwise, we would have won. Sure. Um, including myself. Um, having said that, um, you know, it's easy to say that the side that wins did everything right and the side that loses did everything wrong. That's not true. We did a lot right as well. And the key for us is working out what bits were right and what bits were wrong and not throwing all the all of it out. But, you know, that's, that's underway. Um, look, personally, yes, it was a, kick, a big kick in the guts to lose. We were never – I never um, thought it was in the bag. I don't think Bill thought it was in the bag.
0: Um, but we were confident, you know. All what, about, what about the first time? Do you reckon you felt... 2016. W- 2016, were you kind of buoyed a little bit more then? Yeah, what 2016
1: we lost, but nobody expected us to win, so it was, you know, it's the old expectations game, you know. Um, we did better than most people thought. I didn't think we were going to win in 2016. Bill did, to be fair. Bill thought we were a good chance of winning, and he was more right um, about that than I was. Sure. Um, in 2019... Um, you know, we all thought it was likely we were going to win and in hindsight what we didn't do was – and the whole country thought we were going to win basically. Yeah. But um, I, I, in hindsight we didn't do a good enough job at reminding people how hard it is to win. You know, Kevin Rudd in 07 was always going to win too and he used to have this saying that winning elections is like climbing Mount Everest. It's hard. You know, don't take it for granted. You know, we don't, and we didn't do enough of that. We didn't say enough of that. Um, I, I guess, you know, after the election, you know, um, Bill said to me, uh, it was a rough period, but then he said to me at one point, how can how can you be so positive about life? How can you be so chipper? I said, well, mate, because I choose to be, because it be- beats the alternative. And two, because it's not about us. My biggest problem is I'm not Treasurer of Australia, and your biggest problem is you're not Prime Minister of Australia. They're big problems, but not as big as the problems of the people we're trying to represent and do something about. So it is about them, um, which he agreed with. Um uh, so you just got to pick yourself up and, and keep on going and learn the lesson. So, yeah, I mean, I listened to your chat with Joe Hildebrand. We had some strong views about what we got right and wrong in the 29 election. And by and large, I think he was right. You know, in, um, you know that's not to say that every policy we had was a bad one, to be clear, but we had too many of them. And they sort of built up um, to a sort of big offering which was open to be um, – Misrepresented in a scare campaign, and it meant that scare campaigns then were also more effective about things we weren't doing. We had no intention of doing, like a death tax, right? Which was a big problem, right? Um, It was never our policy, it was never going to be a policy, it was never contemplated. We wouldn't even dream of it.
0: But um, uh, But it became yours to hose down once the rumor's out there, right? Yeah,
1: that's right. And, you know, we did our best, but we should have done better. Um, So I think, you know, it was too big and complex an offering. It's not to say, as I said, every little element of it, every element of it didn't stand on its own merits, but put together, it was um, too much. And so, what we're now doing under Anthony's leadership is not less ambitious, but more focused. Sure, um, which I think was similar to what Joe was saying. Um, and you know, Joe made the Joe made reference to you know that's. Uh, me saying, if you don't like it, don't vote for it, um, which he's right about. I shouldn't have said that. I, I mean, they weren't the words I used. That's the way it's been characterised. Yeah, I yeah.
0: Wh- I, yeah, I don't remember. Was that no, meant to be Q&A or something? No, it was or?
1: a, a Frank Kelly interview, and I was, it was put to me, you know, such and such says, this about your policy. And I think I said words to the effect of, well, you know, we're laying all our policies out there, and if people don't like the policies, of course, they're perfectly entitled not sure. to support us. And what I was really trying to say was it's democracy and we're giving yeah. this democracy a good go by laying yeah. all our policies out there and letting people judge them. Now, I I used a poor form of words to say that and I shouldn't have said it. And, and again, it sort of, I allowed it to feed into the perception of arrogance that we thought we were home, which was never the case. So that's my mistake. I shouldn't have said it. Yeah, right. Um, and it came out. But you, I mean it came out in a way which some people portrayed as being arrogant which oh, quite the contrary I was actually saying no no we're putting ourselves forward for sure. judgment you know yeah and because I think well, you're it, saying
0: like the other side isn't
1: correct totally that's 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 right because they had you know no policies yeah. um, so I was saying we're inviting Australian people to cast judgment on our policies and uh, you know I used a formal words in that interview which was which was a poor formal words which then you know and I had there was a much better answer but despite, you probably yeah. would
0: have said it Normally, if it wasn't in the context of an election, because everybody's yep. snagging, like you're one of the most at the time. You're one of the most four talked about people in the country during that six week period. Yep. So they're they're jumping on everything you say. Yeah. Yeah. And I did, you know,
1: hundreds, if not thousands of interviews, certainly over the six years, thousands. um, Yes. Over that period, you know, hundreds. And, you know, in one answer, I used a poor form of words. Um, That's crazy. I plead guilty. It's become a bigger issue, I think, post election than it actually was pre, because it was, you know, a bit of an election, an issue pre election, but then post election, people talked about it more. But, you know, that's not an excuse on my behalf. Um, No, yeah, fair enough. It's just, you know, um, you know. I shouldn't have said, now Scott Morrison shouldn't have said, I don't hold a hose, mate, and, you know, he shouldn't, there's all sure, sorts yeah, of things yeah, he yeah. shouldn't have done. Um, yeah, but yeah. in politics, you know, there's not, as I guess as in life, self awareness and self reflection isn't always, you know, doesn't always come easy to everyone. You've got to do it if you're going to improve and, and recognise. And, you know, as I said, I think we've got a lot of things right. And I, you know, I don't think... And there's also the counterfactual. What would have happened if we'd gone the election with no policies? Like, you know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, Joe... And again, Joe Hildebrand said, this is one area where I probably disagree with. He said, oh, Bowen cared too much about the bottom line and nobody would have cared if he had big deficits. Well, I'm sorry, the newspaper he works for would have cared about us having big right, deficits. No. yeah. And would yeah. have said Labor can't be trusted with money if, if we hadn't had policies to raise money. Um,
0: Which it, is what they said every year. Every, every, right, every other correct. Every Correct.
1: And yeah. so we were doing our best to deal with that. Yes. Um, now again we probably you know we were trying to do too much we had big health policies big um education policies in particular and i had the view that they should be paid for and i don't walk away from that view we, you, i think you should pay for things you can argue we should we were trying to do too much and therefore we were trying to pay too, pay for too much i accept yeah. that what i don't accept is we could have said, we'll vote labor for a better health system and a better education system and by the way we're not going to pay for it we're just going to have bigger deficits so we're not going to have to do all this tax stuff I think if we'd done that, the election result would have been um, actually much worse for us. Worse, yeah. Yeah.
0: That's fair call, fair call. Um, So just rewinding to the time when you were Treasurer 2013, uh, you know, what's the responsibility of being the federal Treasurer of the country like?
1: Oh, well, it's obviously huge. Um, Yeah. um, You're, you know, you're, you're by definition one of the government's you know, uh, th- three three most senior people. Um, so, um, you know, sometimes you're the second and sometimes you're the third, but, you know, the very, very, very worst, you're the fourth most senior person in the government, in, in reality, you know, but usually top, top three. And um, you've got, uh, obviously, the success or failure of a government really does write a lot on economic management of any government at any time. And also, I have a view that one of the key things maybe the key thing in relation to the success of government is the relationship between the Prime Minister and the Treasurer, you know. If the Prime Minister and Treasurer are on the same page, are you working well together? They don't have to agree. They don't even actually have to like each other and they can have at various points been rivals, but they've got to have a fundamentally respectful mutual relationship. Otherwise, the government will collapse sooner rather than later. Um, so it's enormous. And in my case, yeah, I became Treasurer in, um, what was it, um, May twenty twelve, May like May um, 2013. 2013. um I think it was May, and um, you know, uh, I, I was actually a backbench because I'd resigned from the cabinet. So I actually went from I'd been a cabinet minister, but then I did a spell on the backbench, and so I actually became treasurer from the backbench.
0: This was this when Kevin became the prime minister. Yes. Kevin Rudd became prime minister again. Correct. Brought you brought you into the uh, yeah. into the front cap front bench. Correct. Right, um, and so Kevin was elected
1: leader. at I think it was like seven o'clock at night. It was one of those sort of late night leadership ballot things. Oh, I remember we, them that we used to have. <laughs> yes, um, and, They were lots of and fun. And the other side still has, but we, we've uh, we don't have <laughs> we don't talk
0: about. it. They're not as bad.
1: <laughs> well, they have. They 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 took our model and made an art form of it in their time in office. But anyway, um, they did. They did. So he became uh, leader at seven p.m. and then he and Anthony became deputy leader. So then he. Anthony and I walked back to Anthony's office, and the head of the Prime Minister's department was waiting for us uh, because they had a feeling that this change might be about to occur. It was uh, Dr. Ian Watt. And um, um, uh, Kevin said, Well, I've been elected leader, as you know, and Anthony's been elected deputy leader, so we're the Prime Minister and Deputy Prime Minister designate, and I'm here to tell you I'm going to, you know, I intend to appoint Mr. Bowen as the Treasurer. Uh, And he said, and Ian Watt said, well, we've made inquiries and the Governor-General's available to swear you in tonight if you wish. And we had a quick chat and said, no, we won't go down and do it cover of darkness. You know, we'll, we'll do it tomorrow morning. We're not in that much of a rush. <coughs> but then, um, excuse me, then um, Martin Parkinson, um, who was the Secretary of Treasury, rang me like 15 minutes later and said, oh. I'm told you're going to be treasurer. I said, yes, that's right. And he said, well, can I come and see you? I said, yes, I'm in my small backbencher's office, but you can come and see me. So he came up and he walked in and said, congratulations, um, and I'm here to tell you the uh, in the last six weeks, the deficit has blown out, you know, by $12 billion. And, oh, my God. And at that moment I thought, oh, geez, well, I haven't been sworn in yet. Maybe it's not too late to it's <laughs> <laughs> Oh,
0: that's hilarious.
1: Uh, but, of course, we didn't, um, but it meant – we, uh, and we were contemplating, Kevin and Anthony and I had contemplated calling a very quick election, you know, um, becoming – Kevin becoming Prime Minister and basically calling an election immediately, getting a mandate. Um, but once I had that news, I knew we couldn't do that because we needed to fix up this deficit blowout because it would have been revealed in the election campaign when the sure. books go out and you couldn't, you couldn't go in an election knowing that's coming and not having dealt with it. So that, And I needed time – to deal with that as best we could so that really slowed us down in the calling of an election i'm not sure i'm not 100 percent sure kevin would have called an election if it wasn't for that but i know he, he might have yeah and you know when kevin came back we were ahead in the polls and um you know there was a big honeymoon so history may have been a little
0: different if it wasn't yeah. for that
1: but you know it is what it is good it's- one good one chris yeah. well done <laughs> well well,
0: what can you? <laughs> you, <laughs> what just can had you had do? to hold to the keys, didn't you? <laughs> no, it's interesting. Can I ask about that period? Um, I remember having um, private uh, conversations when I used to work for Bill Shorten. Um, the, I was privy to a conversation between him and Brendan O'Connor during the um, the, the times when there were the discrepancies between um, Julie Gillard and Kevin mm. Rudd. Were you guys uh, just ripping your hair out all the time? Yeah. Yeah, it was a crazy period. Um, Because it's not – its and look, stouches happen. Yes. They happen. Yes.
1: But this one was particularly tragic because both Kevin and Julia had so much to offer, right? Um, And we'd won office with a fresh approach and a strong mandate. And, you know, Kevin was insanely popular and Julia played a very important role as Deputy Prime Minister – Um, and it all came apart and then Julia came back and then, or came, you know, took the job, I should say. Um, and then she had that very narrow election win. Um, some, you you know, we didn't even win a majority, so, but we formed office and the government, you know, really started to go into a bit of a death spiral. And then, you know, um, we went through the leadership challenges and change, um, you know, and and it was just a crazy period. Now, I get what I think about that. It's all very complicated because, despite all that, everything I've just said, we still got things done. You know, we still were a reforming government. We didn't. Yes, we were tearing each others, each others hair out as well yeah. as our own. But we would have those stashes, and then we, but we'd still have a policy discussion and, and get on with the job. So it was still a good government for Australia. Yeah, but it is all very frustrating because you know. I think we had the makings of being a long-term Labor government, which, you know, might just be coming to an end now maybe, you know, if we'd been elected yeah. in 2007, you might think, well, maybe now, you know, 14 years later we might be coming to the end of our run. Um, You're right. And by now, of course, both Kevin and Julia would have had the chance to be Prime Minister with a smooth handover at some point. I look back and, you know, again, I, I, I was a strong supporter of Kevin's because I thought that, well, um, I, you know, I didn't think he should have been replaced in the first place and secondly um it was very evident to me with all due respect to Julia and I do have a lot of respect for Julia that Kevin was going to put us in a better position to win or at least you know uh, do better in that 2013 election um but it's also tragic because um because they were such you know such a powerful combination together yeah. and then but then for whatever reason, it all fell apart, and yeah, so and that's part of the reason why. You know, we joked before about how liberals still do leadership challenges, and we don't because one, you know, we've we've learnt that lesson that just simply changing leaders just has all sorts of unintended consequences. Right, right. And it just
0: eats away at the good, at the electoral goodwill,
1: doesn't it? it just yeah, erodes yeah, it. and. Just takes up so much you know, tr- what we call transaction costs, you know, you know right you think, oh, this person might be more popular if they're his leader, but yeah, but you got to think through what's the cost of doing it? Yeah, to the, yeah, to the spirited core of the show and the spirit of
0: unity and all that sort of stuff, and it's it's very, very big. It's funny that the um, it's funny that the the opposition, uh, sorry, well they're not the opposition, they're the government, mm. but yeah your, your opponents mm. um, uh, they're, they're, they could easily be in a position to replace their current leader at the drop of a hat. Mm. doesn't seem like there there seems to be any lessons learned because the transactional costs don't play into the decision-making.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, they've got away with it. You know, we changed leaders, um, well, twice. They've changed leaders twice. Uh, We paid a huge cost and they they haven't. Um, So I guess they're more... um, yeah, you know, they they're more open to the, the concept yeah. of a quick yeah. leadership change. It works. It can um, be done. You know why is that? Well, probably a, a million different reasons. Um,
0: yeah, but, but yeah, you know, that's just the way it is. Just the way it is. Look, I just want to go into your current portfolio. Um, you know, you're you're the shadow environment minister, which is arguably one of the most important times to be, you uh, know, in, involved in this space. A lot of investment going into renewable energy and green energy. Uh, uh, there's all sorts of discussions about targets I was watching an interview with you and an unnamed journalist which I don't want to get into but it seems to me that when you're questioned on the portfolio itself it's like you're trying to get wedged Mm. because we're not trying to get wedged wedged (laughs) sorry you're being wedged because you're trying to present a policy and and Labor does have a policy because I was looking at some of your videos recently uh, on 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 renewable energy, battery storage, um, uh, you know, it's the. F- there's no doubt it's the future as as as, as in terms of mm-hmm. energy distribution. But then you know they're saying to you, but what have you got to offer? You know, this other group here. It's like, well, can't we give interviews with multiple portfolio holders <laughs> so that we can de- <laughs> deflect yeah. questions where they're needed to go? But we can, you can concentrate on your portfolio. You know?
1: Yeah. So I mean, I think Jim that. Um, I know what you're saying, and that's true. So I'm the Shadow Climate Change Minister, just to be clear. My mistake. No, no, so no, what well, I say? You Energy. Said environment, and it's a very easy mistake sorry, sorry. to make. But, so there's a separate environment portfolio. But, yes, um, yes. I'm the Shadow Climate Change and Energy Minister, um, which is very – I mean, it's, it is the biggest economic transformation the world is going through since the um, since the Industrial Revolution, and it's very important for Australia for – you know, all the obvious reasons. So it is sort of – I was very happy to take on the job in January um, this year, which is when I changed from health to do this. I was happy to do it. Not that I wasn't enjoying health or that it wasn't a big job to do in the middle of a pandemic because this is <laughs> – I mean, this – climate change, one, is such an important reform portfolio and, two, decides elections, you know. Um Yes, yes. Uh, so it's a big job. Uh, and when Anthony asked me whether I'd consider doing it, it was a big yes from me. Um mm-hmm. And I'm passionate about it. Um, But to your question, sorry, I'm waffling a bit, but to your question about being wedged, yes, because I think because there's a high, people know the Labor Party cares and gets it, as opposed to liberals, many liberals who don't even accept the science of climate change. So therefore, there's a higher test on us. Now, um, so hence, you know, I get asked, well, what would you do at Glasgow? Well, I'm not going to Glasgow. You know, I'm not invited to Glasgow. I don't represent Australia at Glasgow. I mean, I could say we could have, you know, 100% um, renewables and zero net emissions next year for all that matter. It doesn't mean anything. Um, uh, I don't represent the country at Glasgow. I think the government should go to Glasgow with higher targets, but you know, um, and I call for them to do that. Um, but ultimately only they can do it or not do it now. And then you, but you still get journalists saying, but what about your targets? Well, we'll announce our targets. We'll announce our roadmap to net zero by 2050. Um, You know, uh, I'm not quite sure when this episode is going to air, Jim, but, you know, at the the time of speaking, we haven't announced them. But, you know, if the government doesn't lift their game at Glasgow, um, you know, we'll have plenty, plenty more to say about our targets uh, and our roadmap, what I call the roadmap, more accurately, to to net zero. I make the point that net zero is the ultimate essential starting point. If you don't have the essential starting point, then you've got no roadmap to get there, right? They don't even have the starting point um, as we speak. They may say more about net zero by the time, again, this goes to air, but as we speak, they're not committed to net zero. That's they're right, The only yeah, developed yeah, yeah. country in the world not committed. So, but, you know, there's, again, I've been around this game for a while now. There are certain immutable laws of Australian politics, one of which is, as much as I might, I might find it frustrating, there's a higher test in the Labor Party. There's a high test on economic management. There's a high test on things like climate change. People put us through our paces more than the government because they just, or the Liberal Party, because they just accept the Liberal Party in climate change and environment is pretty, pretty poor at it. Um, or in economic management, they get away with bigger deficits and you know and poorer outcomes because well, there's this myth built up that oh well, if they're doing bigger deficits, it must be good reason. Whereas if the Labor Party does bigger deficits, of course the Labor Party can't control spending. So, right. I don't like that. No. But. It 's a statement of fact that there's different tests, and we just have to do better as a result All of right. those different tests
0: well let's 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 wind it up there with you know because um, i've heard it 's not the first time i've heard that you know the, the media's expectation or the community's expectation on labour as a benchmark mm. for good governance uh, uh, you 're a labor historian mm. you you know you 've written countless books about the history of the party. Uh, your latest book is about its unsung heroes mm-hmm. what can i ask why what's what's driving you there why what's the love of the, where does the love of the party come from um well the
1: love of the party or the love of the party's history i guess the, well yeah is it all tied in I, I guess it's all tied in so i mean love of the party well i mean as we discussed i started this pretty young but i started it well before I was even on council, I joined the Labour Party at the age of fifteen. Um, why not? From and not from a political family. My parents are now members of the Labour Party, but they weren't. I, I joined, really? and they followed okay. me. Um, uh, why? Because I, um, you know, we grew up on the wrong side of the wrong side of the tracks. Um, my brother and I. I'm not suggesting to you we were dirt poor, but there wasn't much spare. In the house, my dad was a shift worker, um, and uh, you know he worked a midnight shift for years and years and years. So he used to go to work at eleven p.m. and come home at seven. And my mum was a childcare worker in our home, so she worked for family daycare. So she looked looked after kids in our house. Okay. Um, while dad was asleep, so dad would sleep, and mum would have five kids in the house. <laughs> oh my god! Yeah. So it was full on. Um, yeah. And why do I tell this story? Well, because. I worked out pretty young and in a very unsophisticated way, you know, not a philosophically, you know, developed way, that stuff was wrong with society. You know, I went to a school, I went to the local public school, both primary and high, with really smart kids. We all knew that the vast majority of us weren't going to go to uni. Maybe a few of us would, but the vast majority wouldn't. But they were perfectly capable. So I knew there was something wrong, you know. Um, and so gets back to that. I worked out, all well, the levers of politics, in Paul's words. And two, the only people who seemed to care about any of this stuff was the Labor Party. And so um, I got interested in in the Labor Party, and (laughs) (laughs) a a very nerdy uh, confession. So in year six, I won a prize, you know, the sort of school citizenship prize, you know, um, for the, you know, you get the ducks and you get the school citizen. Well, I won the school citizen prize, and um, it was a $10 voucher. And you get called to the principal's office and he says, Right, you're gonna you're gonna win you've won the citizens prize. Would you like the ten dollar voucher, which is nineteen eighty four, so ten dollars was a decent amount of money, right? So mm-hmm. would you like the voucher for a sports store or the bookstore? And I say, Oh the bookstore um, thank you, sir. And um went off to Angerson and Robertson Fairfield with my ten dollar book voucher and bought a copy of Paul Kelly's The Hawker Ascendancy. Um, okay. Oh my god. At the age of um you know, it was twelve or thirteen. Um which is the first I, book I've ever bought. Um wow. I've still got it. Jeez. Oh and
0: my god. Have you got him to sign it? Did you get him I, to sign? No, it, it took part? me a
1: long time to um tell him the story actually. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um and I know this is a podcast, but you and I can see each other and you can see my bookshelf behind me. There's now oh, – yes. I, I think there's now 4,000 books on politics there. It's but quite impressive, It yeah. all started with the Hawke ascendancy. But, Amazing. um that was – you know, it was the Labor Party history and, and hence – you know, then I went and read Chifley and Curtin and all this sort of stuff and found it all remarkably inspiring that this was building Australia. The Labor Party built Australia in my view and I think a very important part of the country we are is Labor. Is Labor. We are, I think – yeah, Paul Keating said before the last election you can trust Labor to run the economy because we built the economy. Now, there's a little bit of typical sort of Paul's, you know, yeah. um, strong rhetoric in there, but in it's it, also yeah. fundamentally true that when you look around what makes us so special as a country, some of the things are, you know, workplace protections and a social safety net and superannuation and age pension and um, a strong public education system and a TAFE system. That's us, you know. The Tories, yeah. the Liberals would never do any of that. That's us. So if you love Australia, which I do, and I think for me it goes sort of hand-in-hand hand with loving the Labor Party. If you love the Labor Party, I also, you know, you love Labor Party history. And so um, uh, I find not only do I love re- reading about Labor Party history, I love writing about it. Um, and so the last book I wrote, as you said, Labor People, is sort of six true believers who've been underrepresented in Labor Party history, which I enjoyed doing because it's sort of something that anybody can write about, you know, Big names, Hawke and Keating and Whitlam, all that sort kind of stuff. But you tell the untold story. So, uh, I'm also a believer, Jim. In the, you know, everybody's different. Everybody has their own way of, you know, operating. But I like the British sort of tradition of you want members of Parliament who do have time and an inclination to write books, because it means they're thinking about things. Either they're thinking about the past and history, which informs the present and the future, or thinking about the future. Um, you know, it's what um, Dennis Healey, the great late british politician called the hinterland you want politicians who can who who. i'm not saying every politician has to write a book but other people do a podcast or read while or whatever but you do want politicians who have a hinterland um who are thinking about life and society and why we're here and what we're doing um we can all do and we all have to i do i'm no no better or worse than anybody else do the grabs and the you know how we're we going to get on the six o'clock news and what's the social media strategy for the day. That's part of the job, an important part, but you've got to be able to step back and think. And for my approach is I find it helps me to think, to write, because it sort of forces that discipline um, to write. So I've written a few books, as you said. Some are histories. I guess two have been histories, and I guess two have been about you know, policy in the future. So I find they go pretty, pretty well hand in hand
0: is writing in your future?
1: Yeah, I'll keep writing. Mean, I um I will keep writing. Um and indeed I hope you know one day when I've left politics I'll keep writing then. I'm because um, there's plenty to do, there's plenty to write about. Um so yeah, I do enjoy writing. I don't do it all the time like I'm on a I've just I put just put two books out in the last couple of years, so my publishers, uh, the uh, indefatigable uh, Louise Adler, sort of already on to me about when's the next book coming. You know? uh-huh. uh, well, I need to break Louise. <laughs> <laughs> and I've got an election coming. So. That's right. Um, but yeah, um, I have ideas. Like the Labour People book had floated around my head for, for years before actually sitting down to write it. I've got a few other books floating around in my head, but hopefully one day I get to actually get into the laptop.
0: Cool well look Chris Bowen uh, it's great talking to you great to get this side of you uh, been a fan of yours for many years been a friend of yours for many years and appreciate your time on the show today
1: well thanks to you Jim and congratulations on the new podcast I'm sure it'll break the internet um, <laughs> and uh, you're, you're a top fella and um, there's a reason why we call you the Goodman so there you go
0: <laughs> we'll save that for another rep alright yeah that's right see you Chris good on you Jim